It's good to be back with you again this morning as we continue our series in 2 Samuel. And so could I please ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, It will come up on the screen, but it is a lengthy section. Um, I really don't think it's ideal to be having our main reading of Scripture coming off on the screen, especially a long portion like this because it's coming up in little chunks. And I would really, again, encourage you to keep your Bibles open before you when you come to the Lord's house as we come to hear God speak to us, uh, that you can follow along in your own Bible, make perhaps some underlines or notes or cross-references. It's, uh, it's always helpful to be able to go back to a portion of Scripture like this and uh, to remember something of what we will consider today. So please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 18, uh, and we're going to read from verse 1 through to the verse 8 of chapter 19. That's the, the section of narrative. Just to set the scene from last time, you'll recall that Absalom has risen up against David. Uh, He has violated David's concubines on the rooftop of the palace. David has fled for his life. He's gathered a a band of men around him, and and Absalom has now pursued David uh, to try and kill him. And so we pick up in chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and He was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt my hand, in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. 
Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Job said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. He said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood, stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. 
The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Well, this is God's word. Uh, let's just commit it to the Lord again now before we, we turn and uh, look at it together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before what is another dark portion of Scripture, one that recounts a series of, of events that at face value do not stir our hearts to, to want to explore this passage in any detail. Help us to remember that you are the sovereign God who has reigned over all of history from beginning to end, who is the author of every word of scripture that we have before us, and who chose to place this portion of scripture, this account in your word for our teaching and instruction and correcting and encouragement. And so we do pray that you would help us now as we consider it together. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Shortly after Billy Graham's 80th birthday, Billy Graham, the great American evangelist, Larry King uh, interviewed him on CNN's Larry King Live and said to Billy Graham, it must be so rewarding to look back on your life and to not have to live with regrets. Billy Graham responded, I am the greatest failure of all men. I was too much with men and too little with God. I was too busy with business meetings and even conducting services. I should have been more with God and people would have sensed God's presence about me when they were with me. On another occasion, he said that he deeply regretted his sins that had caused others so much hurt, and he regretted having been away from his children too much. If only. Who of us have not said those words, perhaps even in this past week, who have not thought those words? If only I had not done this or that. If only I had never said those words. If only I could just rewind the clock. If only. Well, every if only statement that we think or express is really one of regret. 
It's an expression of either disappointment or disillusionment or perhaps even of despair. And what we have in in 2 Samuel 18 is King David's record of deep regrets expressed at what is possibly the, the low point of his life as he confronts the death of his son Absalom. But regrets which run so much deeper than simply the violent death of his son in battle. The depths of David's regrets are seen in verse 33. Just look again to verse 33, which really is the the climax of this entire account. Let me read it from the NIV. When the news comes to David, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, if only. I think this account reveals for us four deep regrets of if only, which are instructive to us as God's people today. And the first is the regret of a house divided in verses one to eight. Now this account starts with David getting ready for war. He's fled Jerusalem, he's crossed over the Jordan, he's now found a refuge and sustenance in the city of Mahanaim in the land of Gilead. But we must not miss the tragedy of the opening verses because David here is not gathering all his soldiers to wage war against the Philistines. He's not waging war against some other pagan nation. No, David is preparing to go to war against his own son. And his small army of Israelite soldiers are busy readying themselves to fight unto death against their own fellow Israelite brothers. The account in verses one to eight is a double tragedy. There's war between a father and a son, and there's war between brothers of the same people. Jesus said in Mark chapter three, verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Well, this account of 2 Kings 18 is is both. It's a house divided and a kingdom divided. And so no matter what the outcome is, such a war produces only losers. Either the father dies or the son dies. Either way, the house is cut down. Either the old king dies or the new king dies. Either way, the kingdom is ripped apart. And sadly, this account is not the last account of David's house being divided against itself. I've mentioned before in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, another son of David, Adonijah, he rises up against David and makes himself king over Israel. So as both a father and as a king, we see the house of David divided. Father against son, brother against brother, and we realize that such a house, such a kingdom, surely cannot stand. Now the details of the account are tragic. As David sends his men out to war, he orders the three generals, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. 
It's really, I think in modern English, deal gently with my boy Absalom. And the sad tragedy of a house divided is really that David knew what was coming for Absalom. Absalom was not God's anointed king over Israel. David was. Previously, think when David, uh, when Saul was still king, David refused to lift his hand against Saul in his wickedness. Why? Because he was the Lord's anointed king. And so David knows that God is faithful to his people and his kingdom promises, and this is not going to end well for Absalom. Under normal circumstances, David should have instructed the army to, to be swift in killing the false king who set himself up against the Lord's anointed. But because David's house was divided, he gives his generals mixed messages. He says, go to war, but deal gently with my boy. Now verse seven and eight are even more tragic as a kingdom divided. Look at verse seven, Chapter 18, and the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. Please don't miss the tragedy of the obvious in verse 7. The men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David. In other words, the people of God were defeated by the people of God. What a warning this is for us as the people of God today. Just this past week, I have been more occupied with the people of God fighting against the people of God than I have with the people of God fighting together against our enemy who is the devil. Whether it's been in marriages, or between parents and children, or between believers in this church fighting against believers in another church, or family members within the church, or between brothers and sisters in the same congregation, the people of God are fighting against the people of God. We've seen this during COVID as congregations who previously partnered in kingdom work together began lambasting fellow believers as false Christians. Why? Because we understand our relationship to the government or our attitude to vaccinations differently or because we interpret the end times differently. I've become so aware in recent weeks of Satan's attack on the church from the inside through deception and false teaching which causes division, that the tragedy of these verses really hit hard this week. We are in a spiritual battle, Honey Ridge Baptist Church, and Satan is parading himself as an angel of light. He's talking Christianese, he maybe even speaks Hebrew, he sells his lies so elegantly on well-polished YouTube channels and God's people are divided against themselves and the results are many thousands of spiritual bodies strewn across our modern church landscape. The regrets of a house divided remains just as much a consequence of the activity of Satan in our day as it was in David's. Let us not be fooled. But the second regret of if only 
is the regret of a cursed son in verses 9 to 18. These verses describe the terrible death of Absalom, David's son. Previously, back in chapter 14, you might recall verse 25 and 26, we were told that Absalom was the most handsome man in all of Israel, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And the glory of Absalom's appearance was his head. He had a mop of hair weighing two kilograms. How ironic then that Absalom's death is described by his head or his hair getting stuck in the branches of an oak tree as he was busy fleeing David's soldiers. And as his donkey bolts, it leaves Absalom hanging by his head. His glory had literally become his downfall. This is a picture of utter vulnerability. Absalom hanging, suspended, we are told, between heaven and earth. No way to get down, no way to defend himself, totally at the mercy of whoever would discover him first. Just days before, Absalom had paraded on the rooftop of David's palace, displaying his power, his dominance as the new self-appointed king of Israel by violating all of David's concubines in the sight of all Israel. He did that so that the hearts of all of those who followed him would be strengthened in his strength, in his rebellion against David. And yet now the same Absalom is hanging alone from a tree in a forest in Ephraim utterly helpless as his men left him to die. One of David's soldiers finds Absalom and remembers that David has instructed them to treat him gently, kindly, and so not knowing really what that means when you're at war, he leaves him hanging there and he goes to find Joab. Joab has, is shocked that this man did not kill him. And so after a few words backwards and forward, Joab takes three javelins and he goes to Absalom and he thrusts them into his heart. And then 10 of Joab's bodyguards come and they brutally finish Absalom off. Following this, Joab blows the victory trumpet. David's enemy is dead. He calls back all the troops from pursuing the Israelites and they take Absalom's body and they throw it into a hole in the ground and they cover him with a large pile of rocks. Now all of this is quite bleak, it's dismal, uh, but there is a far greater spiritual reality taking place in these events. Because this description of Absalom's death and burial is consistent throughout the Old Testament with one who is cursed by God. Listen to one commentator who says, this is the burial of an accursed man. Compare with Joshua 7.26, where Achan, having been stoned to death for sacrilege, is buried under a large pile of stones. Or Joshua 8.29, where the king of Ai, having been hanged on a tree, is thrown into a pit and covered with a large pile of stones. Or Joshua 10.27, where five enemy kings, having been put to death and hanged from trees, are thrown into a cave, the mouth of which is covered with a large pile of stones. Absalom is accursed as 
a fratricide, a, a murderer of his brother, as a rebel. And he too was hanged on a tree and covered under a large pile of stones. But we don't need to make the assumption that Absalom was accursed by the way that he died because in the very previous chapter, we are actually told as much. Look back at chapter 17, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is, is much better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Absalom dying the way he did, hanging from a tree, being covered by a pile of rocks, was the fulfillment of God's judgment on a man who had not just murdered his brother Amnon, who had not just violated his father's concubines, but in rising to take the throne of David, had set himself up in direct opposition to God. And his cursed death was the fulfillment of God's judgment against him. And the lesson we need to face here is this. The wages of sin is death. There is no escaping the reality of God's justice. Listen to how Paul puts this in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The real contemporary application of Absalom's death is actually found in what seems to be a very strange ending to this account of Absalom's death. Look at verse 18. Now, Absalom, in his lifetime, he's dead now, but in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And so he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom set up a stone monument for himself in the king's valley. It's called Absalom's monument. That's just another way of saying Absalom's legacy. But in the end, it was overshadowed by another stone monument, a large pile of rocks, referencing his cursed death in the forest of Ephraim. Is our world not filled with cursed sons and daughters? People setting up monuments for themselves all over our city and our country and our world through social media profiles that promote themselves as king or queen of the valley, setting up monuments by climbing the corporate ladder, setting up monuments in our massive houses which are more like museums than homes, setting up monuments in share portfolios or in bank balances or in fancy cars, setting up monuments of sexual conquests in the pursuit of pleasure and luxury, setting up monuments of sporting achievements and political maneuvering. 
But in the end, for every person who sets up a monument for his own name, in the end will face the same fate as Absalom. The wages of sin is death, and the end of those who sow to the flesh is one of eternal condemnation. In the third place, then, we see the regrets of, let's move on, the regrets of a failed fatherhood. The regrets of a failed fatherhood in verses 19 to 33. We have a rather drawn out scene here uh, in these verses of David sitting at the gate, looking over the plains, and the watchman sees messengers running. Ahimaaz outruns the Cushite. He gets to, to David first, and even before he arrives, David says, Ahimaaz is a good man. He comes with good news. I'm sure we can all identify with David in that moment, can't we? We so often think that if we just kind of speak positive words over a situation, it's all going to be okay. And initially, David hears what he was wanting to hear. Ahimaaz cries out, all is well. And then delivers a very God-honoring version of the battle. In, look at verse 28. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the King. But good news for David only means one thing. Is it well with my boy Absalom? And suddenly Ahimaaz has selective amnesia and, and he waffles some half-truth about a commotion and then lies about what it all meant. And so then the slower-paced Ethiopian uh, arrives and he brings the, the rest of the truth to David. Verse 31 Behold, the Cushite came. Good news for my Lord the King. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with my boy Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that man. Suddenly David realizes that Absalom is indeed dead. The apple of his eye has been killed, and so David just breaks down. Verse 33, the king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he cried, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, why do I say that, that these events in these verses reveal the regrets of a failed fatherhood? Surely Absalom got what was coming to him. Surely he didn't think that he could murder his brother and usurp his father's throne and violate his father's concubines and pursue his father to death and it would not turn out badly for him. He simply got his due. Surely all of this is not on David and his failure as a father. Well, we don't need to speculate because God is not silent on the events of this chapter. God is not silent on what has taken place. God is not silent on David's failure as a father. Please turn back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12, verse 19. This is the section when the prophet Nathan confronted David after his adultery with Bathsheba, after his murder of Uriah. Listen to what God said to David. 
Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel in broad daylight. So yes, we are watching in chapter 18, chapter 19, the final outcome of a wicked young man. Yes, Absalom followed the pursuits of his own evil heart's desires. He did what his own evil heart wanted to do, but nevertheless, we see everything taking place in these chapters is the consequence and the judgment of God against David's own sins and failure as a father. This is why David cries out in verse 33. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. David knew full well that he was partly to blame for the outcome of Absalom's life. That his own sins, that his own failures had borne the fruit of rebellion and death in the life of his son. And perhaps for the first time, David was beginning to understand the depths and the consequences of his failure as a father. I think the application of this point is quite simple, and that is the title of my sermon from a few weeks ago on 2 Samuel chapter 13. Where are the godly men? Where are the godly fathers in our society? Where are the righteous fathers? Where are the men who put their wives and their children before themselves and before their careers and before their passions in order to lead their families in the ways of the Lord? And then finally today, we see the regrets of a futile kingship. As we move back to chapter 19. Chapter 19 really just continues the miserable saga by revealing not just David's failure as a father, but also David's failure as a king. It takes Joab, his military general, to call him out in his failure and to push him back into the position as God's anointed king. You see, news of David's weeping for Absalom's death travels fast and, and reaches Joab and the brave men who fought to regain David's throne. But the custom of the day was if the king is mourning, then the whole nation has to go into mourning. And so instead of these mighty men receiving a, a hero's welcome back into the city as David is once again restored to his throne, instead we are told the men have to sneak back into the city ashamed as if they had been defeated in battle. And as they steal back into the city, they hear the voice of David continuing to ring out from the room above the city gate. 
Oh, my son, Absalom, verse four. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What a travesty. This was not behavior fit for a king. Yes, the father David was needing to grieve the death of his wayward son, and I don't want to try and minimize that in any way, but the king David was needed to lead his people under God. The writing had long been on the wall that David's rule as king was fading fast. And Job is furious about David's weakness as the king of Israel. And so he marches up into his room and he speaks a strong word of rebuke to David. Let's go back there, verse five. Chapter 19, verse five. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants or soldiers are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you, for your kingdom." and all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. This is not the first time that Joab had to stand in for David's failure as king. Back in chapter 12, verse 26, while David was still floundering uh, to regain credibility after the day of Bathsheba and Uriah incident, Joab goes out to war against the enemies. And we read there that Joab fought against Rabah and he took the, the city of waters. And then he sends a message to David and says, I have captured Rabah. Now get up, get up, David, bring your men, come and take the city. Otherwise, if I take it, it's gonna be named after me. And so David goes out, it seems reluctantly, and takes Rabah and takes the crown from the kid's head and puts it on his head. But it was the beginning of the end for David. And yes, despite Joab's dubious character, and we'll see that in weeks to come, many times he had the opportunity to steal the limelight. Joab seems to have a great respect for the office of God's anointed king over Israel. And once again, he pushes David to take his leadership responsibility seriously and to be the king that God intended for his people. But the last verse of this section is the most revealing of the ultimate futility of David's kingship. Look at verse 8b. It's actually moved over in some Bibles into the next section, but it's still part of verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Yes, David's position was restored, but the people of God were leaderless as each man flees to his own home. What a gemors. We need to conclude this morning and, and to ask ourselves, why is this depressing story of regrets in the Bible Yes, we've learned some lessons along the way, but what is it meant to teach us as God's people in, in 2023? 
And I think, firstly, we are meant to realize, as Joab did, as the rest of Israel was beginning to see clearly, David is not our savior. If you are still tempted to look on David as the hero of the Old Testament, this chapter reminds you, it reminds me that David is just in, as much in need of God's rescue as you and I are. And only David's greatest son, Jesus, is able to be our rescuer. And despite the darkness of these chapters, there are some wonderful hints in this tragedy which, which help us to appreciate and, and anticipate King David's future son, Jesus. As we consider the application of this story to our lives, well, if David, through his failure as a father, through his failure as a king, is an ultimate pointer to Jesus, then Absalom, I would argue, is a pointer to you and me. I don't know if you saw that one coming. But if we are honest with ourselves today, we are just like Absalom in our rebellion against God. God gave us life, and yet we wanted to be king. We set up monuments for ourselves and for our name. We usurped the place of God's kingship in our lives, and we sinned openly on the rooftops in defiance against God. So the Bible is clear, the wages of your sin, the wages of my sin is death. And yes, our heart goes out to David when he says, oh my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. But despite all his best intentions in the world, David's if only to die as a substitute for Absalom was impossible. David fully deserved to die for his own sins and his death could never make atonement for Absalom's. But praise God that Jesus is not like David. His love for us is perfect. His righteousness in our place is perfect. He alone is able to offer himself as the propitiation for our sins and he is able to save to the uttermost those who put their faith in him. Listen to the wonderful parallel which Paul draws from this story, I think, at least from this principle in the Old Testament in Galatians 3 to reveal to us how David's failure ultimately points us to the reality which is Jesus. In Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing, the promises of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you're still not convinced that you are Absalom, you might be convinced that I'm Absalom, but I'm wanting to help you see that you also are Absalom. That we are in desperate need of rescue. Let's read again Ephesians chapter two. Thanks, Dion, if you'll just take me through that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, like Absalom, cursed, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so as we ponder the, the darkness and the desperation of all these if-onlys, these regrets of this story, Maybe today as you go and reflect on the deep regrets of all the if-onlys in your own life up to this point, can I encourage us to, to run with fresh faith and appreciation to Jesus who hung suspended between heaven and earth, who was cursed by God in our place, who did die the death that we deserve to die, so that we might be restored as sons and daughters into God's family and be given the position as co-heirs with Jesus Christ of all the blessings of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you again this morning for your word. Even such a, a dark portion of your word would which if it serves just one purpose today, is to bring to our hearts and our minds the clarity of what it means to be cursed by God and to die the death of a cursed man. And as we reel back from that image of, of Absalom hanging in a tree and then being covered with a pile of rocks, cursed by God, May that draw us with deep gratitude and appreciation to our Lord Jesus Christ, who bore that for me, who bore that for us. Lord Jesus, may we love you evermore and never depart from your ways, for you and you alone have the words of eternal life. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.